The scripture today is from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one, awake, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you know, oh, hello, two weeks in a row. I don't know if you know this, but this week was the beginning of the seventh season of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And I find it really interesting, this show, one, that it's gone seven seasons, and two, that there's this fascination of people looking at celebrities. So first of all, let's just kind of deal with that. Um, maybe people of notoriety. Help, I'm a person of notoriety. Because celebrities are like, you know, Mel Gibson and Daniel Craig and Julia Roberts, not somebody that was on some show called Paradise Island or a former announcer of something or a YouTube, sorry, millennials and younger, YouTube star, not really a celebrity. But here's this idea, right? We're gonna take these people we're going to put them in difficult situations. We're going to have them do difficult things. And all the time they're raising money for charity. So it's okay for us to watch and gawk and 
just relish in the fact that these people who seemingly are better off than we are are getting their just desserts. These people who are wealthy and have notoriety and who could probably get a table at the fanciest restaurant without having to pay a little extra. Those people who would probably get a meal for free even though they don't need that help. They're sitting there having to eat worms or live in conditions of no aircon or no and have mosquitoes and all sorts of things coming at them. And we sit back and we go, yes, they deserve that. Okay, maybe not. Maybe that's just me. But that's what this psalmist is doing. See, this psalmist starts off by saying this promise, right? That truly God is good to Israel, talking about the covenant community of Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's the ideal. That, that's the thing that has been set out from Psalm 1 that we looked at, right? That the way of the wicked is destruction, but the way of the righteous is prosperity. But here the psalmist is saying something different. He says, surely, almost calling to memory this idea that God is good to those who are righteous. Now, how he defines that righteousness is fitting within God. How we define that righteousness often is doing the right thing. And then we define what is the right thing by what we want to do. So if I do what I want to do as the right thing, then God will be good to me. But he notices that that doesn't seem to be what's happening, actually. And that's the reason why verse 2 says this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps have nearly slept, slipped. For I am envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, he looks out in the world, he looks out at those that are around him, and he says, your chosen nation, your covenant people who are doing all the right things, who are ticking all the right boxes, it doesn't seem like they are prospering. But it seems like the wicked, the pagan nations around us, those who are doing the wrong things, they seem to be prospering. And they need to get on, hi, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. They need to be punished, but for some reason they're not, and I have become envious towards them. Now there's a strong word that's used here by the psalmist. When he says that word prosperity, that word prosperity is the word shalom. And we know that the word shalom is God's wholeness, God's peace. And he's looking out and saying, these people have what you've promised to us. Now, it's perhaps that he's defining it a little wrong. But it's also because he sees the promise of, if I do good, then I should get good. So what does he say about these people? What does he say about them? He says they're slim, they're healthy, they're wise. Uh, and then he says they're so fat that their eyes are kind of uh, not being seen because the rolls of fat around their eyes. That's, that, that's what that says there. It's amazing. It's a great thing. It's not a goal to try and achieve. But, but it's that place that I get all good things, right? I'm eating so well. All of the delicacies, all of the, all of the uh, croissants and butters that I can have, I, and, and I've gotten so big that I can't even see my eyes anymore. 
And then he says they're full of pride and arrogance and violence and they scoff and they speak malice. They turn their backs on others and they question if God even exists. Does that sound familiar? What they're saying is we have no need of God because we've got it so good. Isn't that our heart sometimes? Isn't there places in our wicked little hearts that go, in this little area I've got it so good, and it probably was because of what I've done. Not thinking that it possibly could be a gift from God. Not thinking that it possibly could be God blessing us in some way. Sadly, usually it's around finances. And I want to say that God does bless us through finances, but that's not all that God uses to bless us. As we talked about last week, the way of Christ is suffering. That we're blessed through suffering as well. And so here the psalmist is saying, look at them. They deserve all this. No wonder I am jealous. No wonder I am envious. And then he asked a question in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task to me. When I think of the world and their prosperity, and I think of the righteous and how bad they have it, and I try to figure it out, it makes me tired. But then. I love but thens. But then I went into the sanctuary. But then my eyes were lifted up. But then I gathered with the people of God. But then I stepped out of myself and I came into a place I came into a place where I could see God and see myself and see the end of them. Now this doesn't sound very loving, what he ends up saying here. And there's a point to it. He tells us what's going to happen to him. He says, I discern their end, that truly you set them on a slippery place, that they will fall to ruin, that they are going to be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by their terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, the Lord, when you're roused, you'll come and you despise them as phantoms, as if they've never existed. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 7, verse 14 through 16, that says this. It's a psalm that is titled, The Fool Says That There Is No God. Uh, I'm sorry, 7, not 14. It says this. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit and digs it out. And he falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. The way the NIV translates that verse 14 is this. Whoever is pregnant with, oil, uh, with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. 
See, there's a sense that what's taking place in those folks' lives, and I would say ours at times, is that we begin to have this thought that we are God, that we've got it figured out, that we become the mocker that says, thanks, I'll take it from here. And in doing that, we are pregnant with evil. Because evil is not the doing of bad acts. Evil is the placing myself on my own throne. It's saying I'm better than God. Those outgrowths of me stepping onto God's throne, where I try to get mine and only mine, that's the place that sin comes from. And so evil, what? Conceives trouble. That gives birth to disillusionment. A lie. And what is that lie? It's the lie that's been about since the foundation of the world that Satan told to Adam and Eve. Surely God's not good, and you know better. You see, we step into that place just as these evil men and women that the psalmist is talking about where we say, surely I know better that I can walk in this way. What the psalmist is really breaking out for us here is a path of despair and destruction versus a path of hope and wholeness. He's saying to us that even though I know this statement to be true, that God is good to Israel because they are righteous, and I see all things falling apart, that there is something within the back of my head that when I step into the people of God in the sanctuary, I recognize that God is good and all he does is good. So the path that looks like it is a path of success is actually a path of despair and destruction because their feet are set on slippery ground. That they will give birth to trouble and disillusionment. And we will too. But he says that I, in fact, have set you on a path of hope and a path of wholeness. Now, first step in getting on that path is confession. Listen to what he says in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and arrogant, ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. That's the psalmist confessing that I was out of my mind wild like a chicken with its head cut off. Completely and utterly wild. Because I'd forgotten who you were. And how I was towards you was like a ravenous dog. You give me what I want now. But what's the verse right after that? When I was a wild animal towards you, God, it says this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You see, the path of hope, the path of wholeness, is the fact that God says, even though you're acting like a wild animal towards me, even though you are at a place of despair, I am with you continually. I am holding your right hand. I do not let go of you. You are present with me because I have sought you out and brought you in. Walter Bergerman, when he's writing about this passage, says this, that we recognize a very distinct difference. I'm not a big either-or kind of person. I like both and very much. 
But this psalmist presents an either-or for us. It is either the covenant community or it is commodity. That's the way Bergerman puts it. That the righteous community, the covenant community, the one who God holds their right hand is what we're called to. And that is the path of hope and wholeness. But the other presentation is the presentation of commodity, meaning seeking out of worldly success, seeking out a place in our own hearts where we can reign as king or queen, where we can say we know which way we're going. And that is the path of despair and destruction. Bergerman points out to us in this passage that it is a battle that is going on, but in the end of the battle there is a choice that has to be made for everyone. And we see the psalmist make this choice. But it reminds us of Matthew 6, 24 on the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, here coming in the month of February and a little bit beyond that, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be studying it because it is the greatest sermon maybe ever preached. But in, in Matthew 6, 24, we see Jesus say this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's saying to him, look, there are two paths that you can go by. Which one are you walking on? Which one are you following? Then he says this, My flesh and my heart, they were, uh, they were failing, but God is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. And he asked that beautiful question there before, Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? Jesus, as he was walking with the disciples, there were people who were leaving him because he said some hard things. And John tells us in his biography about Jesus, about this scene where he'd said, I am the bread of life and you must take and eat me if you're going to be part of me. Eat me so that we can be together. And his disciples said, that's a hard saying. And many people left him. And Jesus turns around to Peter and he says, are you also going to leave me? And Peter looks and he says to him, where else would we go? You have the words of life. This psalmist is saying the words of life are based in this path of hope and wholeness. The words of life rest firmly in Christ, who is the one who holds our hand. That This hope is based on Christ alone and what he has done. So that it becomes less about me ticking a box of righteousness, but it becomes about me receiving the righteousness of Christ put on me. Because there's no way that I can lose my envious mind unless God transforms it. Because I am a person who will always judge myself by other people, not by the holy standard of God. I will always look and say, better than them, better than them, worse off than them, worse off than them. And I'll do it in every sort of category. Better cars, not as good cars. Better house, not as good house. Better eating, not as good eating. Better wine, not as good wine. Better looking, better looking. Right, we do that. And the same is true here. The psalmist looks out and he says, look at all these things that are going well. But what happens? He steps into a place with God in the covenant community. 
And so the first thing that we need to grab from this is that we need each other. That we need the covenant community. That we need to step into this place with one another. Maybe not necessarily this place, but with each other. Although this is a good place to be on Sundays and other times together. Because it's in this place that we remind each other that yes, while the world might look like it's succeeding, God is high and lifted up. And I would much rather be on a path of hope and wholeness that is hard to walk than a path of despair and destruction that seems paved with gold. I was talking earlier this week with someone, and we were talking about trust. And that's what it boils down to here. And one of the things that we were talking about is that trust is based on expectations. When we have an expectation, and when that expectation is not met then in that expectation not being met, we lose trust. The expectation of this psalmist at the very beginning is those who are righteous get good. Those who are unrighteous get bad. But the world doesn't prove that. And so when I look at that, my trust can diminish that God is good. But if my expectation is this, that even if I am completely and utterly like a rabid dog coming at your heels, God, you will not put me away, you will not put me down, you will not send me to a kennel, you will not give me up, you stay with me and you grab my hand. Then my trust is placed firmly in the God who sent himself sacrificially to bring us in to him. And so then, once we set our trust correctly by being together in community, we know this of verse 28. It is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may what? Tell others of his work. And we do that both with word and we do that with deed and we do that with a life that is filled with a beautiful aroma, a scent that they get in their nostrils that they can't help but smell and go, that is so pleasant, I need to be by that. God is our path. God holds our hand. Let me pray. You're good and all you do is good. And though it may look like things are going awry in our life and the world or those that we call the world or those that we think are evil are succeeding over us, we know that all that is a matter of perception and expectation. And so we place our trust in you, the one who is always continually with us, holding our hand. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand up and let's sing together?